This week, it's all about the wine, folks. The language and imagery of the kingdom of God, as the people in Jesus' time described it, was as a, as a great banquet that included copious amounts of wine. How not surprising it is, then, that John makes Jesus' first miracle just that. Wine is a symbol of life, joy, and plenty. Life, joy, and plenty. What more could you ask for or possibly want? Now, a question for you. Is there anyone here this morning over the age of 10 who has never heard the expression or the story about Jesus turning wine, water into wine? So raise your hand if you've never heard the story. Any of you? Okay, so we're in a good place. This is great. In Jesus' time, wedding celebrations went on for several days, sometimes even up to a week. And the tradition was that the guests brought contributions of food and drink, and in return, they were promised generous and steady banquet of good food and good drink. And if the wedding couple did not keep up their end of the bargain, they would be publicly scorned, and in fact, they could be taken to court. Ugh. No one wanted to be that couple. The one who years later, as you walked down the road, only heard a whispered, do you remember that wedding feast disaster? <laughs> Mary, Jesus' mother, was in attendance, as were Jesus and all of the disciples. Notice that Mary was not identified by name, only as the mother of Jesus. This is one of two times we hear of Mary in this gospel. That's it, two times. Again, identified only as Jesus' mother, and that's at the foot of the cross. Mary never forgot the task that she accepted, even when it would ultimately break her heart and shatter her soul. She never stopped being a mother or acting like one. But back to the wedding. Good heavens, after three days, the wine has run out. Scandalous, embarrassing, this is not okay. Again, take note of the particular players in this act. Some of the servants are there, yes. The father of the bride and host, no. The bride or groom, no. Other attendees, no, apparently not. They have no idea that they've run out of wine long before the party is over. Mary notices. So let's imagine this. There stands Mary, hands folded in front of her, takes a quick look, turns around to her son, and says in a voice with a manner that only a mother who is dropping a none too subtle hint says, they have no wine. And still imagining this scene, Jesus' loving son to Mary, but obliged to his heavenly father, tries to cut this off before it goes too far. Mother, stay out of this. This is not my problem. It's not my time to be showing anyone anything. Now, why this? Because they are living in the now and but the not yet. Yes, Jesus is the son of God, and yes, his ministry is to reflect and embody this, but what will ultimately reveal this truth has far more gravitas and importance 
than what Jesus views at this moment to be a cheap parlor trick. The cross will prove to be the genesis of the greatest miracle of all, and it simply isn't that time. And yet, just as soon as he has said no to his mother, the next words we hear are, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. I mean, he's just told you no. Is this just not the best? Come on. Mary heard Jesus' refusal, and out of her mouth comes, do whatever he tells you. Jesus shoots a glance at his mother, shakes his head. Maybe he chews at his lip a little as he bites his tongue, and knowing he's not going to get his way, says, fill the jars with water. Now, these are not ordinary jars. They have a religious, holy purpose. These jars are used in Jewish purification rites, and they're big jars that hold between 20 and 30 gallons of water, which means somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons in total. The abundance is mind-boggling. This is amazing. This could be a real good party. <laughs> but also consider this. It's not as if the servants can connect the hose and turn on the water and just fill these jugs. There's going to be a lot of trips back and forth to the water source to get them filled. When that's done, Jesus then tells the servant to dip into one of the jars and take a sample to the chief steward, a man who was probably a total mess at this point, knowing he's out of wine and there's nothing he can do to remedy the situation. He receives quite the surprise when presented with the wine that Jesus has supplied. Where has this been? Whoa, this is good stuff. And, and how much of this do we have in the back? The servants know where this has been, but they say nothing. The chief steward seeks out the bridegroom to commend him on this very unorthodox but amazing choice he has made in saving the best for last rather than providing the best up front. When people would ultimately drink so much they'd happily settle for something inferior, being oblivious to the difference. And only a few people know what's taken place. Jesus, the servants, the disciples, and Mary. But everyone, everyone who was present benefits. By changing water into wine, Jesus was announcing he'd come to give us abundant life. So what does this all say to us? What epiphanies might we take away? One might be that the story of Jesus turning water into wine is about him giving us an extravagant gift. He doesn't just give us life. He gives us life extravagantly. Jesus was and is the, gi the, the gift of extravagant grace, of extravagant love, of extravagant hope, an extravagant life. Another epiphany we notice is that to recognize and call out the needs of those around us, saying just as Mary did, they have no fill in the blank. They have no money. They have no home. They have no dignity. They have no voice. They have no joy. 
They have no love. Or perhaps this epiphany, that we trust that Jesus holds a solution to filling those needs in a way that our world does not. That we have faith that Jesus will meet us and act in that scarcity. Do what he tells you. Draw the water, fill the jugs, follow his direction. Put another way, who is Jesus and what is life with him like? It's like the best wine you can imagine and gallons of it. It's like drinking that wine when you're expecting the cheap stuff and you've done nothing to deserve it other than to show up at the party. This is the first of the signs that Jesus does, the writer of John tells us, but it's not the last. While each sign is important and certainly proved Jesus worthy to be followed, he too saved the best for last. And in this last action, showed to people that settling for something inferior, that accepting anything less than a life that is abundant, is not the way that we are called to live. The 19th century theologian Soren Kierkegaard once remarked, and I quote, Christ turned water into wine, but the church has succeeded in doing something even more difficult. It has turned wine into water. Ouch. That he didn't say that, end quote, ouch. <laughs> I fear there's truth in that statement whether it is a rigid interpretation of scripture, a narrow vision of what church should look like, a clinging to how we've always done things, a fear that what little we have will be taken away from us, a desire for certainty over mystery. All of these things can contribute to the church completely obscuring God's word and love and unbridled extravagance. The wine steward and the bridegroom didn't keep the gallons of wine for themselves, nor did they ration it. They shared it and made sure that everyone had enough. So maybe at its most basic, the epiphany of this story from John is this. Jesus comes to give abundant life. We need to show up to the party. In the name of the one who loves us and has given us life. Amen. Amen.